And we'll be looking at several passages of Scripture this evening as we come to another installment of our questions and answers. As you know, we from time to time will devote one of the Sunday evening lessons to answering questions which, which you've asked. We have a little box out there in the foyer and individuals are invited to simply, if there's a question related to, to the Bible that you would wish to ask, simply write it on a piece of paper, drop it in that box, and then from time to time we will devote these lessons to simply giving consideration to those questions. This opening slide is merely an introduction. The whole reason as to why these questions and answer sessions are so vital is we are convicted. In the language of 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It is our belief that the Word of God does have the answers to the things of our life. Sometimes questions are asked that are beyond my capability of answering, of course, but certainly some things that are asked in the Word of God, you and I can turn our attention to it and offer what would be apparently the answer that the Word of God presents to us. Tonight we have several questions, and we're going to turn our attention at this point to the first one. The first question reads as follows, and as is always the case, I don't know who asked the, any of these questions. Certainly thankful for each one of them. Does Matthew 26, verse 29, teach that Jesus will drink the fruit of the vine with Christians in heaven, or in the church in a spiritual manner once the church began? The word kingdom used here, does it mean heaven, or does it mean the church? So if you'd be turning to Matthew 26, we'll read the verse that has been mentioned as a part of that question, and then we'll give some attention to some statements about, it, about the answer. Let me start reading in verse 26 of Matthew 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it, and broke it and gave to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung in hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now that's reading through verse number 30. And our question, of course, had cast a spotlight on verse 29. Again, in the wording of that verse was Jesus saying that it would be in heaven with the assembled saints, if you please, on that occasion, that he would partake of the fruit of the vine with them. Or was he referring to the partaking of it with the church once the church was established? Well, you can see on the slide, I would offer us perhaps a few thoughts. This particular description is also found in Mark chapter 14 and also Luke chapter 22. It could well be that those other passages, which in fact are sister passages to this one, may in fact offer us some helpfulness to some of the things we might should say about it. One of the things the person asks as a part of the question is, if I may again specifically say, the word kingdom, does it refer to heaven or does it refer to the church? There are certain places in the Word of God in which the reference to the word kingdom refers explicitly to heaven. 
because, in other words, what it is that takes place there, we know from the context, will occur in heaven. There are other passages, however, in which the word kingdom clearly refers to the church. I would simply offer you these as, as strong considerations. In Colossians 1 verse 13, the Apostle Paul, as he directed word, inspired words to that Colossian congregation, it was to them, he said, you have been translated out of the world into the kingdom of God's dear Son. So in other words, they were already in the kingdom, the Christians at Colossae. The Thessalonians, something very similar in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12, they were in the kingdom. John could say in Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 and 10, he in fact was in the Lord's, uh, on the Lord's day. He was in the Spirit, and he there makes reference to them being in the kingdom. So those are just a sampling of passages that remind us that in many instances at least, the word kingdom does refer to the church. Now that takes us back to the first part of the question. When Jesus said, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Well, you can notice on the slide, it does not seem that the Lord was only referring to what would take place in some future abode of heaven. I say that in part because in Acts 10.41, we have a reference there to where the Lord, in fact, partook both with, with actual eating, if you please, with the disciples after He was resurrected. But not only that, you might note these possibilities. It seems the majority of the consideration in this would cast a strong understanding to the blessedness of our partaking of the Lord's Supper each first day of the week. And I say that in part because... 1 Corinthians 10, 16, specifically says we commune with Him as we partake of the bread, and we commune with Him as we partake also of the fruit of the vine. If we're communing, that word communion means to share. It means to enjoy a participation with. And so if it is the case that those ideas are in those passages that Paul wrote, it certainly would loudly shout that you and I have the marvelous opportunity each Lord's Day of having a communion with, a sharing with Jesus. Now, you and I should quickly note, we partake of the Lord's Supper because it signifies our conviction in His death. The blood that He shed, the body that was so mutilated for us. And as we, in fact, jointly share in those matters, it is a testimony of our belief in Jesus that shall last until He returns. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. You might notice, in light of that discussion, could you at least imagine an application in this that Jesus could have referred, at least in some small way, to heaven? First of all, I'd say, nowhere does the Bible teach there will literally be grapes or literally be things like that in heaven. But what we are told in Revelation 19 is that there will be a figurative marriage supper of the Lamb. And you and I will blessedly, as Christians, be invited to partake in it. In that regard, in that sense at least, doesn't it remind us of the sweetness of Christianity? So I'd say it would seem from the Word of God, the major lesson here points to our enjoyment, our blessing in the Lord's Supper 
each first day of the week. But what about question two? Question number two tonight is a much briefer question. It reads as follows. As far as we can tell from history, what was the last New Testament book written completing the canon? Now, there are two parts to that question in a way. The last New Testament book chronologically is one thing. But not only that, it also asks about the completing of the canon. Now, on the slide behind me, let's give some thought. First of all, at least in general, it's a very challenging matter to ascertain the specific date of writing of the various books in the Bible. We know there are 66 of them, and there are some of them that there are clues within them such that we can at least roughly and approximately assert the date of writing. That's certainly true of many New Testament books. It also is true of some of the Old Testament ones. But the particular question here, which one was the last one written? In the Old Testament, that would certainly seem to be Malachi. In other words, that book upon its completion, the date of its writing appears to be right around 432 B.C., which would put it quite a bit later than any of the other minor prophets of the Old Testament, and even quite a bit later than the major prophets as well. But with that thought, what about the New Testament? I have asked you to notice, at least on the slide, I would also say that the first one in the New Testament is also a matter of some discussion. Which one of the 27 may well have been the first one that the God of heaven inspired men to write? As far as the gospel accounts, it would seem that Mark is the earliest one by far. As far as the actual epistles, it looks like 1 Thessalonians may well be one of the first ones. It's difficult to say if it's the absolute first, but it certainly would seem so. I, I would highly think that probably it was. But which one was last? There was a time a few years ago when there were some who asserted Jude might well be the last book. I don't think that is, at all is right. The things written in the book of Jude would seem to point it to a time probably two decades or more before the book of Revelation. It would seem the book of Revelation, with all the testimony concerning it and the matters which are specifically addressed in chapters 1, 2, and 3, that book appears to have been written in about 95 or maybe 96 A.D. If so, that would make it the last one written. Isn't it somewhat fitting? It closes the New Testament and also closes the Word of God. You may note one of the last things at the bottom. I mentioned the last of the Old Testament ones, but did not mention the first of the Old Testament ones. There's actually a good discussion surrounding that one. Clearly, Moses wrote the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. In fact, even Jesus testified to that in John chapter 5. But could we also note this? It would appear the book of Job actually addresses points in time prior to the days of even Abraham. And if that be true, then perhaps Job predated some of the aspects and features of the actual writing of Moses. Now, I've given a rough estimate. The book of Job does not tell us explicitly when it was written, but it certainly seems to predate the law of Moses by a few hundred years. I just 
asserted maybe 1800 B.C., but please take that with a very, very strong element of, of, of appreciation, just a guess on my part. But I hope we've at least addressed the question. It would appear Revelation is the final New Testament book. Now, it mentions also the canon. That word C-A-N-O-N is a word that refers to the inspired writings of the Bible. So in other words, the writings of men would not be the canon. That's the inspired words of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 still says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That phrase, all Scripture, points us to the consideration of the canon. When God had the book of Revelation completed, all of the necessary pieces then were in place to ultimately put into that canon and complete the fullness of the Word of God. On to question three. This question takes us again to the book of Matthew. This time it's chapter 24. Let me read the question. And if you'd like to be turning to Matthew chapter 24, we'll devote some attention to a part of that chapter in just a moment. The question reads as follows. Does Matthew 24 verses 30 through 34 teach that Jesus descended with His angels from heaven as a sign from, from the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now let me read the text, and then I think you'll appreciate the person's inquiry in, in light of the question. Matthew 24, let me start reading in verse number 27. For as the lightning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and He shall send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now that takes us through verse 31. Now back to the question. The person's asking a very good question. Does that set of verses teach that Jesus descended with His angels from heaven as a sign of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70? In short, the answer is no. But let me try to do better than that. In what way could we make a conclusion like that? After all, the text here says, in verse number 30, "...then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man." Now, the person has offered the thought, does this then mean that when Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70, which is the context of that discussion, that Jesus literally appeared with His angels on earth as a sign, a visible sign to the reality of that destruction and God's will that such a thing take place? Well, as you can begin to see on the slide, if you proceed back to the opening verses of Matthew 24, this is a significant chapter in many ways. 
It has, in fact, been called the most misunderstood chapter in the Bible. Let me offer some thoughts to assist us as we seek to rightly divide it and put into consideration the nature of what the Lord was discussing. In verse number 3, as Jesus had just left Jerusalem, He had ascended the Mount of Olives, and His disciples came to Him and asked Him some questions. And the questions they asked were these. And as He sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto Him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of Thy coming and of the end of the world? Now the Lord had just said, I'm telling you, not one stone of that temple is going to be left that will not be torn down. One stone won't be left on another. It would seem the apostles were perplexed by that, and they privately came to Jesus while He was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they said, Tell us, when shall these things be? This destruction of this temple you've just talked about, tell us when that's going to happen. But they didn't stop there. They went on to say, verse number 3, What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? They asked Jesus, you see, two questions. One, about the local destruction of Jerusalem and when that was going to happen. But then secondly, further in consideration, what about the end of time? When's that going to be? Well, at this point, you might go ahead and notice, the Lord answered those questions in order. Starting at verse number 4, the text says, Jesus answered and said unto them, Now, the first question they had asked detailed, or at least asked about the destruction of Jerusalem, and that truly was going to be a colossal event. Jesus answered that question from Matthew 24, verse 4, to Matthew 24, verse 35. Now, if I could draw your attention to the last two statements, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, This generation shall not pass, till all these things be fulfilled. In other words, everything the Master had detailed from verse 4 all the way to verse 34, He says, every one of these are going to come to pass in this generation. In other words, He was not talking at that point about the end of time. He wasn't talking about His second coming. He was talking about that destruction of Jerusalem. Now, although it isn't a part really of the answer we need deny. May I go ahead and say that beginning in verse 36 of chapter 24 and continuing until the end of chapter 25, he answers the second question. There are some dramatic differences, of course, in the answers. But the querist has directed our attention to verses 29 to 34. With that bit of background, look again at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. Now I suppose it would be easy to read that and say, Surely the Lord's talking about the end of time. The sun's going to be darkened. The stars are going to fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then will appear the sign of the Son of Man, the next verse. But I just now got through saying that everything through verse 34 and 35 related to that destruction of Jerusalem, not to the end of time. What then does verse 29 mean? If I could ask you to observe this, 
there were a few occasions of the Word of God in which a description not unlike this one is found, and it clearly does not relate to the end of time. Hold your finger here and return with me to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13, and listen to the similarity in what you'll notice in what I'm about to read. Isaiah 13. Let me read it first, then we'll discuss somewhat of what this context is, and I think the point will be clear. Beginning in verse 9 of Isaiah 13, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. Well, there again is a reference to the constellations are going to not shine, the stars as well. You'll notice the sun's going to be darkened, the moon won't shine either. I wonder what that was talking about. There's no question there. The context from verse number 1 of that chapter onward is that great series of events that was to take place when God would destroy the Babylonians when there would be an overthrow of that great ancient power and she would be conquered and give rise to another, I would simply say that on many occasions in the Word of God, language like that is used when there's a great overthrow of some power, an overthrow of what had been a very strong and stabilized force. Let me give you another example. This went on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Turn to that chapter with me and let me just read very briefly a couple of the verses. Acts chapter 2. We remember so well the events of that day as it's detailed in Acts chapter 2. May I call your attention to verses 18 through 21. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. I have a question. That text just said, as Peter affirmed it, in verses 19 and 20, the sun's going to be darkened, the moon will be turned to blood. On the day of Pentecost, did the sun literally turn dark that way? Did the moon that day literally turn into blood? Well, we know it didn't. We know what was being stated there was a quotation from Joel chapter 2, and what was being discussed was this was a figurative description of the powerful overthrow of the Old Testament system, and the gospel system was going to come into play. A new plan of salvation, a new way of doing things. It was the blessed church that was now going to be established. It was the overthrow of the Old Testament power and the coming into force of the New Testament one. That's what Joel had prophesied, and it's what Peter quoted. It is with that in mind, I would offer this. In Matthew 24, verses 29 and following, as Jesus describes what was going to occur at the destruction of Jerusalem, it was to be an impressive overthrow. When Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70, they completely did away with the final tally of what had been those holding on to the old system of the, of the temple. 
Finally, that temple was to be destroyed and it would not be built again. All the records of the Old Testament were destroyed. They no longer had access in fullness to that which once had been the thing to which they had clung. God overthrew that system once and for all. I would offer that that's the sense of what's in verses 29 and following of that chapter. Jesus wasn't referring to His second coming. He was referring to the destructive of Jerusalem. As you and I close that slide, I would offer that seems to harmonize with every other matter, touching the feature of what literally came to pass when Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 69 and 70. On to question four. This question, again, a very perceptive question. It reads as follows. Some congregations of the Lord's church offer a sign language interpreter for those who are deaf. Many times women are seen in worship services delivering the sign language. Would this violate 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 to 14? You may want to be turning to 1 Timothy 2 as we give some thought at least to the verses that the person has mentioned in that passage. Again, the question, a very, very good one. I have offered some initial thoughts at the top of that slide, not the least of which are these. You and I know the God of heaven has blessed us with the capability of hearing. The Word of God testifies to that in Proverbs 20, verse 12. Not only that, even those who do not have that capacity of hearing as others, God made that person as well. He equipped them with the capabilities in whatever sense those may well be, be a current. But those really have pointed us to the question. We would certainly have to applaud those individuals and those congregations who would have a desire to make a worship service understandable to those who are deaf. Because the Bible teaches how important that is. I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding. Now, if a person who is deaf, that person could hopefully read the words out of the book. But to a person perhaps unable to do that, they would not have access to the wording of those songs. It would be a good thing to communicate those words to such an individual. Not only that, what about our prayers? I will pray with the Spirit. I'll pray with the understanding. 1 Corinthians 14, 15. And isn't it true that in the book of Acts we have so many testimonies to the apostles who strove to make the Word of God understandable? Somewhat reminds us of Nehemiah 8, verse 8, doesn't it? Where Ezra and the others preached and gave the meaning so that they could understand the reading. So again, we would certainly commend those who would wish to make that offering. But that does bring us to the question. 1 Timothy 2, verses... 11 and following read like this. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed in Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. We certainly would be in a position to make these observations. What function, what role is a sign language person fulfilling? On the slide, I've asked you to notice a few things. First of all, it might well be one of strict translation. 
In other words, the man who is doing the preaching, perhaps this individual is simply signing the actual words, and that's certainly fine. That's to be expected. But is it not true that person is actually conveying an additional role? To that person who is deaf, for example, the words of the preacher himself are not what has brought the meaning and the bearing upon that person's heart. That person can't hear what the preacher is saying. The channel through which that wording has been brought is through the interpreter. That's the person, that's the individual communicating and conveying those actual messages. That being said, would it not be the case that verse number 12 then carefully speaks to this? I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man. Clearly the interpreter is bearing an element in authority over that person who's deaf. May I offer 1 Corinthians chapter 14 as perhaps a commentary on this. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul dealt with the church at Corinth. And you might recall with me that they had some questions about the spiritual gifts, one of which was the speaking in tongues. They, in fact, clamored for that particular sign. They wanted that one above all the other particular gifts. And yet in the midst of all of that, verse number 27 and 28 of that chapter reads as follows, If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church." and let him speak to himself and to God. Here was a situation where, again, individuals were blessed with the capability of speaking in tongues. And Paul very clearly said, even despite the fact a person may have that gift, if there's no interpreter, be quiet. And verse number 34 will say, let the women keep silence in the churches in that very context. In other words, here was a situation where it would seem the application is easily enough in a position to be made. If there's not the proper course of the other things God's put in place, and if the women are to keep silence, it would have to be by way of men. Then, in fact, the silence is to be upon them. I would offer, and you can see on that slide, it would seem to me that those who would offer sign language need to use a male to do that if there's any men who are those being the recipients of that particular offering. Otherwise, it would seem that 1 Corinthians, or rather 1 Timothy 2, really does have a bearing and at least call into question the things that in fact have been brought to bear in a case like that one. Question number five. This question I particularly save until last. It is a very profound question. It reads like this. Why was Jesus crucified? Why not shot with arrows or stabbed with a sword or with a spear? Why did His death need to be so slow and, slow and so agonizing? Do you see the nature of the question? The person, again, has asked a very perceptive one, why? Was it by means of crucifixion that the Master should be put to death? After all, there are many other people in the Bible who died in a lot of different ways. 
Sometimes it was with swords. Sometimes they were stoned to death. Sometimes they were decapitated. Why was it by crucifixion that Jesus was to be put to death? Now you'll notice my comments on the whole have been fairly brief. Let me offer a few thoughts. I suppose one could quickly say, but wasn't it foretold in the Old Testament that it would be by crucifixion? Yes. I think that's probably a cop-out. Why did the Old Testament prophets, according to the will of God, foretell that that was to be the way it was? It is true in Psalm 22, it was specifically foretold Jesus would be pierced. And it was that very chapter he quoted while he was hanging on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But you'll notice furthermore than that, it does seem there are some other verses that may at least offer some thoughts to it. I have put in quotation marks a particular phrase, a particular word. In texts such as 1 Peter 3, verses 18 and following, as well as Acts chapter 3, verse 18, we have statements like, "...it was necessary for him to suffer." or he must needs have suffered. The point is, it would seem as if it was not an arbitrary choice on the part of God. It had to be done that way. It was a part of the infinite will of God that His death take place not by being decapitated, not by being simply run through with a spear, not by being stoned, but there was something special, something particular, something very needful about the means of crucifixion. You'll notice on the slide that there's an additional statement in the Hebrew letter that seems to perhaps present a voice on this subject. It's in chapter 13, verses 12 and 13, where there it says, Outside the camp our Savior suffered for our sins. And as He made discussion of the crucifixion, He linked it directly to the character of your sins and mine. It is in that way I would at least offer this. It would seem that the agony, it would seem that the excruciating character of His death, it would seem that the characteristic of that means of death, and may we pause to say the Romans invented crucifixion. They were the masters of putting people to death that way. Have you ever wondered? The ancient Egyptians didn't know anything about it the ancient Assyrians or the Babylonians, none of them had perfected crucifixion. It was the Romans. In Galatians 4.4, the text says, But in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law. The fullness of time. I would offer that one of the elements of that fullness was the right time for the perfect one to be put to death by this means that was remindful of the nature of sin. You know, if a person's head is struck from his body, as history seems to suggest happened to Paul, well, that's a rather quick way to die. But to appreciate the kind of agony the Master endured, scourged the way he was, and if that wasn't bad enough then to be nailed to a cross with a crown of thorns platted on his head, and to be reviled publicly the way he was, humiliated and insulted in the most open and vicious way. 
Humiliation, unlike any other means of death the world to that point had ever known. And many would say, to this day, never been known since. And that's the death the Master endured because of my sins. That's how bad sin is. That's how awful my sin is. When you and I then commit sin, regardless what men may call it, some might call it a white lie, but it was bad enough that sent him to the cross. Some might describe these other things that, again, the world taints and tries to remove the power from it, but it cost our Lord to be crucified. One last thing on that slide is this one. There was an elaborate sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Very elaborate. They, of course, had to select the right animal. It had to be put to death in the right way, and its blood had to be done something with in most cases. And all, every bit of that looked forward to the death of Jesus. Every bit of it was fulfilled in its entirety in the majesty and the perfection of that day. We know that because of Hebrews chapter 10. It is with that in mind I'd simply say, why was the Lord crucified? In the infinite wisdom of God, that was the matter whereby we could appreciate the awfulness of our sin and the price that had to be paid for it. For without the shedding of blood is no remission. Hebrews 9.22 That closes our questions for the night tonight. And it also closes our lesson. Each time we have these questions and answers, they're very good questions. And if it be the will of God, we'll look forward to trying to do some more sessions like these in the new year. At this point, let's offer an invitation. It might be there's someone in this assembly who upon reflection upon the death of Christ, and you realize perhaps some of the choices you've made this morning, two precious individuals came forward confessing error and asking that God forgive them, and we were delighted to pray to God on their behalf. We could do that again tonight if that's needful. If there's anyone in this audience that would wish to come down this aisle and make a confession of things that you've done amiss and you know others know it too, and you want to be right with God, you know that could happen in a matter of minutes. But I would also say if there's anyone who's never become a Christian, you realize that there's a different plan of salvation, of course, for that situation. You first need to make contact with what happened at Calvary. You do that as you obey the gospel. We're told that in several New Testament passages, not the least of which is Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. As you believe in Jesus and repent of your sins and confess His name and then are baptized, you are added to the church. And as such, if you walk faithfully till death, heaven will be your home. Tonight, if we could be of assistance in any of these ways, it'd be our joy, our delight to do so at once, while together we stand and sing the chosen hymn.